I'm Christy. I started this podcast with the victims and their families in mind. I love true crime, and so often I find the victims' lives and the stories about who they are get lost in the details of their death, their disappearance, and I just wanted to do a podcast my own way and reach out to families and and talk with them so they know that they're not alone. I want the families to know that there's a whole community of true crime enthusiasts that would love to be able to help. So getting the word out about these stories is so important, especially in this day and age where social media and technology continue to show us that they are capable of solving cold cases. And in the Midwest, where 48% of homicides go unsolved, social media can be so important. So welcome to Little Crimes on the Prairie, brought to you by Crooked Sea Ranch Productions. So thank you, Christy, for your help and support of our family. Um, We know Deb's case has been botched and things have been covered up. Someone out there knows something. Today is 41 years since I lost my sister, and I'm bound and determined to get answers. If anyone knows anything, has a memory of anything, Even if you think it's insignificant, just contact myself or Christy. I'd be very willing to talk to anyone. How can a 14-year-old girl die in a small community and nobody cares, nobody remembers, nobody will talk? I'm committed to find answers, so come to me and tell me what you know. I'm not going to stop, and neither is my family. Deb deserves peace, and so do we. We won't stop. We will find out what happened. No amount of money is going to stop us or keep us quiet. Please just come forward and talk to me or Christy. Put yourself in our shoes. Would you stop? I don't think so. This is A Little Crimes on the Prairie original. The 1980 census shows 1,123 people living in Edgerton, seated on the southeastern edge of Pipestone County. Only the year before, on August 18, 1979, 14-year-old Deborah Lynn Tolzma Vallejo was found dead in the Shanarambi Creek, which runs through a pasture approximately 300 yards east of her backyard. Welcome to Little Crimes on the Prairie. I'm here with Serena, as usual, and today we have my bro cop, Steve. Uh, I work for the Madison Police Department. He's, he's an officer with the Madison Police Department, so he's here to kind of... He's here to guide us through some procedural questions we may have. Thanks for being here. Anytime. All right. So, I picture a town much like Mayberry, only a few officers within a small local police department, maybe the town drunk, sleeping one off in the unlocked cell. In a town that's small, not much happens without everyone knowing about it. Okay, the headline of this article is, Death of Edgerton Girl 14 is Probed. The Worthington Daily Globe by Lou Hudson. Authorities Saturday launched an investigation into the death of Debbie Lynn Tolzma Vallejo, 14-year-old daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Antonio Vallejo of Edgerton. Her body was found about 3 p.m. Saturday by a neighbor, Mrs. John Ruder, 
who was among those searching for the girl who had been reported missing since Friday night. Authorities have released to the public very little information so far. The girl, an apparent victim of drowning, was found lying face down in about six inches of water in a backwater channel of Shanarambi Creek. In their investigation, officers are seeking to determine if drowning was the cause of death or if some other factor was involved. They also are exploring the circumstances of the death, seeking to determine whether it was accidental or whether homicide may be involved. There were reports, not yet confirmed by authorities, of scratches on the girl's neck. An agent of the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension from Wilmer has been called in to assist local officers in the investigation. The body was taken to Sioux Falls for an autopsy to determine the cause of death. The Vallejos reported their daughter missing as of 8.49 p.m. on Friday. When she did not return during the night, the search was intensified Saturday with the family, law officers, neighbors, and friends joining. Mrs. Reuter, who lives next door, was looking in the pasture area along the creek when she came upon the body at 3 p.m. Saturday. The girl was a student at Edgerton Public School. The funeral has been scheduled for Tuesday at 1.30 p.m. at the Bethel Christian Reformed Church of Edgerton with the Reverend Henry Lamsma and the Walls Funeral Home in Charge. Burial will be at Hillside Cemetery. Let's dive in. There's a lot to unpack here. In that article, there's there's some information that conflicts with supplementary investigation report that I was provided. Deputies Marion Mutt-Poole and Bob Ogans responded to the call placed by Debbie's mom. Deputy Poole spoke to Mrs. Vallejo, and according to a friend, Deborah had seemed bothered by something recently, but never really elaborated on what it was. I totally sucked at being a teenager, so yeah, I was always um, bothered by everything. So, thanks for breathing, Stephen, and ruining my teenage years. <laughs> I was the same way. I, I mean, I think I think we it's it's fair to to assess all teenagers as bothered by everything, and I, I agree. you know, let's not let's not ask too much of them. I think as a teenager, my world ended about five times. So, I mean, minimal things that go wrong is the end of the world. That's so true. It happens. Everything is so dramatic yeah. when you're, you know, when you're a teenager. And uh, I think that sometimes, you know, after you get to be an adult, you kind of forget how much of a pain in the ass you could be. I think most of us, you know, by the time we're growing up to, you know, feel some sort of remorse for, you know, putting our parents through that kind of thing. And so moving on, according to local witnesses, the deputies spent some time looking around town at the local haunt and spoke to a few people asking about Debbie. They checked a rural residence southeast of Edgerton because some young kids lived there and they thought maybe she was holed up there. Whatever that meant in their mind. Maybe, you know, she just ran away or, or something. I, I can't, I don't know what, what they thought or, or exactly what that might mean. According to the supplementary investigation report did say that they stopped and talked to a male that was walking down the street. He said that he had no idea where where Debbie was. At that point, they just kind of went home for the night, I assume. I don't know. It, it, maybe they kept looking, but it, um, it, it does say that Officer Poole went home. Deputy Poole went home. The next morning, Deputy Poole stopped by the Vallejo residence to see if Debbie had made it home. She had not, and her family provided Deputy Poole with a description of what she was wearing. Faded Levi's and a blue shirt that had cores written across the front. It's like my outfit every day. Soon there was people out searching for Debbie, neighbors and friends and family. They all kind of walked together in pairs or small groups, and they kind of just walked around the area just looking to see, you know, the town of Edgerton to see where she 
maybe, or houses uh, in the vicinity of the Vallejo residence. Sadly, Deb's aunt and neighbor searched the pasture where they found Deb in a small back channel that branched off of the Shanarambi Creek. At approximately 2.45, Deputy Poole had received the call that Deborah had been located. As it was mentioned before, it was approximately 300 yards east of the edge of town, and their house was located right on the edge of town, so about 300 yards from, from her backyard. According to the report, when Deputy Poole arrived, Deborah was laying face up in the water with one hand extended out. It does not clarify as to which hand it was. I was able to... To speak with Deb's aunt, and she confirmed that when when they came across Deb's body, her head was facing towards her house. So that would be that would mean her head was facing west, and that would, I would assume put her feet facing east. Um, it's interesting to note that that creek runs north and south. However, that back channel does have some curve to it, you know, almost like a horseshoe. And you know, um, you know, depending on the area in which she was found, you know, it could vary quite a bit. But I do know that um, Deb's aunt said that she kind of looked up the hill and could see the house. So I'm assuming it was almost directly behind. And that's kind of the way it was described to me by, by witnesses that found Deb. So let's talk about the injuries that were noted on Deborah. Well, in the Worthington article, they noted scratches. In the report, there... The description is a little bit more interesting. It um, it refers to the marks on her neck as lacerations and or puncture wounds. So that's you know that's kind of interesting. I guess I guess that would be is I mean would you consider that consistent with like fingernails or I mean it without any further detail it's hard to say but. I mean, your difference between laceration and puncture wounds on a detailed report is, I mean, they're two different things. A laceration is a cut, a puncture is a stab. Right. You know, poor choice of wording, I think, in that, because it's not descriptive enough to make a good opinion-based conversation about. Right, right. Yeah, they're here saying lacerations or puncture wounds as if they can't tell. Right. 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 And I mean, you know, that's that it, it is an interesting way to describe an an injury on a dead body of a young girl laying in a creek behind her house. I mean, you know, let's. I mean, let's just get this out there right now. Um, it it does not appear to me to be a suicide. Um, I'm no expert, but you know, her family has has spoke to that, and I mean, it just is not. I don't think I don't think it's a credible theory at this point, especially considering you know where we're at with it, within the research and investigating portion of of this case. It's just it's just not likely. It's and, and I it, it is almost laughable, you know that 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 is a, a rumor and it is a theory that that has been going around for forty one years. As a matter of fact, forty one years today. It's everyone has a speculation. Everyone's got a theory, and I'm not here to try to you know discuss theories. I'm here to try to uncover facts. So so, but we're talking about you know just small discrepancies in in the reporting of. of information that I received and information that was public. As a matter of fact, the only information that's public. And this report also says that she's bleeding from the nose. Um, is that common with uh, people who drown? Um, not typically with people that drown, but it is pretty common in in death cases that you do start bleeding from occasionally the eyes. And the, that's the just any typical death that you... Typically, I mean, people do that when they die. N- not always. Um, you know, like in, in your drownings, anywhere that, that there's a uh, severe pressure, you know, you're going to have that, um, anytime that, 
you know, if you're upside down, you know, obviously mm-hmm. the blood's going to rush to your head and it's got to escape somewhere. So typically the eyes, the nose, and the ears. Bleeding from the ears in a death investigation is typically seen with blunt force trauma to the head. Bleeding from the nose is is a relatively common occurrence. What makes it strange is she also has those injuries to the neck as well as a bloody nose. Um, that's something that I think I would look at farther. Is, is that is that maybe indicate possible um, strangulation or asphyxi- asphyxiation? Um, so for strangulation, asphyxiation is going to be like an accidental uh, an accidental death, like positional asphyxiation, right? Yeah, it, yeah. It's an accident. You put your head down in a pillow and pass out and you suffocate right, yourself. Right, okay. Um, strangulation is going to be from an outside source. Right. And typically um, with strangulation, you're going to have what's called ligature marks on the right. neck. Typically, they're not going to be scratches or punctures, but you're going to see bruising on the neck where blood had pooled to cut off the airway. So a lot of times um, in somebody that has been deceased for even just a few hours, you're going to start to see those bruises form where the blood pooled in that area where that hand was around the throat. We don't particularly know how long she was in this creek. I mean, anywhere from yeah. 16 hours well, yeah, I mean, or less. So like if we consider, if we consider the timeline and she left the house at approximately 730 she wasn't found until 245 at the at the very most that's about 20 hours or so right now when I spoke to the family they did um, at some point get some information whatever happened to that um, was was not discussed with me and they indicated that her time of death could have been approximately 11 p.m they did not say the night before she was found. Indeed, yes. indeed. It, yes. okay. But you know, you know, anyone who knows um, anything about crime or true crime or you know looks at these cases enough knows that you know time of death is really relative. It's it's never exact. So I mean, and and that's where you look at a few indicators, um, which in my opinion should have been worded in the report. In in every death that I've been to, I've I've been to many deaths, and I've only been to one homicide in my career. But in most of those, I'm always checking for rigor mortis. If rigor mortis has set in when I arrive, that gives me a timeline. So rigor mortis doesn't typically set in until four to six hours after death. And and depending on how flexible they are, how advanced they are in the rigor mortis process is going to further that timeline because the more time that had passed, the stiffer they're going to be. So a lot of times um, when people perish, their hands close. So if if I can peel their fingers back, that's enough flexibility to determine that, you know, it's probably been a few hours, probably looking at four maybe. But if I can't peel that finger back because it's just that rigid and all that, all that blood is cool and is locked up that hand. Now I know that we're probably looking at a farther timeline. Right. right. Um, now after 12 hours, rigor mortis can go away. And so now you have to look at, you have to look at other things of, you know, pooling of the blood in, in certain parts of the, right, in certain parts of the body. So if you look at that and you can determine that uh, rigor mortis has set in and passed, now you can further that timeline even more. Right. And that's where being descriptive in your reports is very important. 
because you can have a preliminary investigation by law enforcement to determine how long that body's been there. Exactly. In the description of her arm extended out of the water, I'm not sure if this is noted already, but um, this is six inches of water, so we're not talking about a lot of a, water, a, a big body of water. Right. What, what I, do you What do you know about um, water rescues and safety there, uh, Brocop? Um. So in part of my duties as Law enforcement, I'm also a search and rescue diver with the Lake County Dive Team. So as a search and rescue diver, um, when you have drownings, what's going to happen is the body is going to curl into a fetal position every single time. Um, Whether it's six inches of water, the knees are going to curl up towards the body because you're face down. And it's your natural reaction as trying to gasp for air. They're going to curl into a ball as you start to... Fate from life. That's very interesting. I, you know, a lot of the cases that interest me, to be honest, not very many of them are like water related. Sure. And, and I and I kind of found that interesting because you know, as far as unsolved cases go, you know, where they suspect foul play, the water just is not an ideal place for someone to like try to get rid of somebody. You know, like they right. the, they always have a way of surfacing. It seems, and they do. So I mean, and even in six inches of water. Um, you know, like you said, she wouldn't have been found in the position she was. Right. Um, if, okay. if she had drowned, that arm that was sticking out of the water would have been curled closer to her chest. So, you know, with her arm extended out, you know, without a further description, I have a hard time imagining it. it and, and I don't mean that, that I can't imagine it. I mean that the, the picture that it paints for me is, is so creepy. Yep. It, so was was her arm extended out in a rigor state or was it, you know, um, resting on something? You know, so I have, I mean, obviously you know me. I have so many questions. Well, they, they do say in here that she's face up and her arm's sticking out. So perhaps she was not found that way and she was moved that way well by uh, the people who found her to see if she was still alive that's interesting because in speaking with with deb's aunt who who is a who was a witness who she was there she found like first on the scene she was a party to to finding deb's body which i mean as an aunt myself i can't imagine i don't know i don't know what kind of strength that woman has but i i just know that um not something i can imagine and i would be absolutely devastated to be honest i would remember every single detail and it would never leave me because just because that you know it would it would be just that devastating so i i'm inclined to believe her when she when she says they came upon her face up in the water they came so someone else put her face up well i mean initially when I read this report, you know, I'm just kind of trying to picture it in my mind. Obviously, if I came across a person laying maybe somewhat in a body of water and I guess turning them over to me would be the first thing to do to check for signs of life. Mm-hmm. However, you know, like I said, um, you know, I'm inclined to believe her aunt when she says that she was found face up, you know, and until I get any information, you know, the, that disputes that, I, I'm just going to go ahead and say that that's how she was found, and according it, to the witness. And that's that just there. it. We don't know exactly how she was found. It's not worded in any of the reports that it, are here. Right. It's, right. you know, it's not information, factual Strictly. information that we yeah, have. Witness. If she had been found face down, there again, you're going to have several indicators of waterlogged. And Sir. dirt. You, you would think that she would have, if she were face down at any point, she would have dirt or something right. somewhere. You know, you're, we're mud talking six inches, of, on her face. six inches of water. We're talking about basically a mud puddle that goes into a bigger mud puddle. Right. Like, 
right. you know, it's it's not that hard to imagine. You know, we've all we've all stepped in it before, right. and we know um, and what the it, advantage you know. that you and I have is we know this creek exactly because we grew up in this area. Yeah, you know, it's not very wide. I mean, you're talking a couple feet maybe wide. Is when there animals in it? Fish in, in that in, in that area, it is. You know, you know, I went back there recently. You know, to to check it out. And I was actually surprised at how, keep in mind, this was in, this was in June, but I was surprised at how much bigger it seemed when I actually stopped there on the bridge and, you know, got out and looked at it. I was like, when, you know, we go past it on the way to grandma's house, it's like, oh, the little creek. Right. But, um, honestly, it, it is a big creek. Uh, it, and it, and it's big enough to have a back channel that, you know, I suppose just some little tributary that for some reason, you right. know, maybe a cattle path or, or whatever I caused it. I, I have no idea. Maybe. But, you know, if we're talking six inches of water that's flowing through this creek, you know, we're not we're not talking, you know, late in the season or well, see, early in the season. When we have snow melting and flowing through it. Right. Right. We're talking August. Right. We're talking August 18th right. of 1979. In the dog days of summer, you know, it's going to be lower than Indeed. normal. Yeah. You know, interesting to note, too, um, the six inches of water that flowed through that area isn't really indicative of the height of the water in the actual Shannon Creek. It flows much nicer, and it, and it, well, I shouldn't say nicer, it flows more, and it's very, it, it, looks, it looks like it could be a little bit deeper in some of the wider areas. Sure. You know, like I said, it's so weird to just stop there and look at it. Again, you know, as an adult, after seeing it almost every single weekend as a child, and at one point, I remember trying to picture, you know, a girl being found there, and 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 this is when I was quite young, after I'd heard the initial story that I heard about Deb, which came from a friend of mine when we were down at the bridge smoking cigarettes, <laughs> you know, she just blurted it out that there was a girl that was found in the creek that was murdered. And I was so skeptical of it that, you know, I told her she was full of shit. I proceeded to grill her with questions and she had no answers because... She doesn't know. Nobody knows. Right. Nobody has any answers because nobody freaking talks about it. And, you know, at that time, I just was so incredulous to the idea that a murder could happen in Edgerton, and I wouldn't know about it. You know, thirteen-year-old me just thinks that <laughs> it's not possible. I, I just, you know, I think there's a lot of times as kids, you know, we just think we we know stuff, and you're you're sorely disappointed when you grow up and find out you do not <laughs> know know things. So you know, to like I said, to picture a body laying in that area, um, it is really serene. It's it's really honestly a beautiful view uh, and it's and it's so typical of minnesota you know just a little creek mm-hmm. um, flowing through a pasture and just cattle standing by grazing peacefully it really strikes me now knowing you know maybe the general area that she was found and also you know the description of how she was found and i think that's why you know trying to picture it in my head with her arm extended out I think that's why it appears so creepy, you know, when I when I pull up that image in my mind mm-hmm. and you know, it's it's not just, you know, the way the way Deb was found. It's it's the contrast between, you know, the the devastation and the and the beauty and the the tragedy and, you know, the serenity right. of the area and and the circumstance. So, yeah. So that's that's how I picture it and it and it's almost it almost makes me cry cuz you know, as a kid I I just loved it every time we went went over that bridge and 
you know, I can't imagine people that live in Edgerton now and, and don't even think about that when they drive over that bridge. That's a sad situation. So right. moving on. So let's talk about this because, um, so according to a witness, the local doctor arrived um, as he was a deputy coroner, um, Dr. Beckering, and he observed Deb's body and said that she could be removed from the water. At this point in the discovery of Deb's body, a crowd had started to form in this pasture to um, get a look or, oh, I don't know, whatever nosy people do that aren't me, you know, gathering around a dead body. It's more uh, common than you think. In, in this time, a, a crowd had formed and she was pulled out of the creek and this report states that, is it Officer Poole that, um, that removed her from the water? I pulled her out, and Dr. Beckering examined her. That's what the report said. And, and I'll say that there is definitely, definitely conflicting information with that statement, according to a friend and relative of another witness who, who was there when Deb's body was found. It was not Officer Poole that, that removed Deb from the water. It was a neighbor and and an, and an uncle, I believe. Um, I'd have to clarify that, but but it definitely was stated that it was not Officer Poole. Once again, here we are. I don't know that. I don't know. Is that the same uncle that's noted earlier in this report? Um, it, you know, it could be. It could be, or it um, it may be the husband of another uh, of another neighbor. In, right. in the area, so yeah, there's a lot of so redacted information just, here. Do you have just one source that says no, no, no? I, I did, I did hear that th- that has been corroborated by two separate people in two separate interviews. So okay. you know, I'm inclined, like I said before, you know, I'm inclined to believe the people that that have told me these things. After Dr. Beckering examined Deborah briefly, he requested Deputy Poole to drive him to his office, according to the report. At which point, Deputy Poole left the body laying in the pasture with this group of onlookers that was building. Deputy Poole asked one of those onlookers, um, which is turned out to be an uncle of Deborah's, according to Deb's family. Officer Poole tasked him with the job to keep the be- people back away from Deb's body. Keep the area secure, basically. Yeah, I mean, I'm a cop. I'm just going to go drive someone back to their office and just leave this girl here. I'm going to need you as a civilian to control these people that are coming here to look at it. So I have a feeling that that does not happen very often. Stephen ever left a dead body laying there to go give a doctor. That's like a hit and run, but with cop stuff. (laughs) No, I mean, that's, that's not common, but again, you know, we are, we are talking about 1979 um, I will say in, in my experience, um, whether it be a suicide or an unattended death or, or a homicide, in every one you set up a perimeter because you don't know. You don't know what the circumstances are going to be. So you set up an initial perimeter, which is usually your police line, do not cross. And then you set up another perimeter outside of that, and that's for like your media and stuff like that. And then, and then you have another perimeter outside of that, which is for your onlookers where people are going to gather and they're not allowed within the next two perimeters. You don't you don't just leave the body laying there unattended while you go and run and do another errand. I mean, it, it's not. I guess the part that really that really strikes me and 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 bothers me about that. I understand some of the struggles and 
maybe technical issues that technology has really helped, you know, you guys be able to avoid those kinds of situations. The fact that he claims that he left to take Dr. Beckering to his office is interesting because Dr. Beckering's office was within walking distance. Right across the street from her house. From yeah, well, yeah, my understanding is that it was kind of behind the across the street. But, I mean, we're talking right. we're talking a matter of a block. Right. A block away from Deb's house. So, I mean, you get to Deb's house, there's a block to go, and you're where you're, where you're hoping to be. Right. The fact that he asked for a ride is strange. The fact that he asked Officer Poole, as he was attending this incident, this this death, to give him a ride is just unbelievable to me. I'm like, in my mind, I can't help but think, you know, maybe it was an opportunity for, for a further conversation. However, um, Deputy Poole himself says that he also spent time sitting in his car uh, making radio calls. And I have a difficult time with that because, I, you know, if he received a frantic phone call from someone who discovered a body, Deb's body, at 2.45, he has to go back to his car and make radio calls. Why, why weren't those calls made before he walked down to the area where, where Deborah's body was found? It, That's where we get into... The technology aspect of things. Technology just wasn't there at that time. You know, if, if I'm walking down, if, you know, if I get a call about a possible unattended or, you know, a found body or something like that, initially I'm going to walk down there and confirm what we have, right? And then that's where it comes into play of you securing the scene, setting up a perimeter, keeping people out. And then in the case of 1979, you know, I'm going to have to, I don't have a cell phone. Phone calls would have to be made from the office or through dispatch. So depending on what kind of calls he's 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 making out, whether it's to the BC, BCA and, and other resources that he's trying to get to the scene, he's still the only one there. And he, he does have a balancing act. So playing devil's advocate, you know, I, I can kind of see both sides because it's not like he can stand to secure the scene, talk on the cell phone and, and call people to, to come help. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, and, and it's not like I didn't consider that that issue. My issue with that is is that considering the time and knowing those limitations that you do have, when you get a call about a body that's found, wouldn't it be prudent? Or I would think that at the time, you know, you would have a, a you know a standard operating procedure where you know if you're alone and you get a call saying that there's a body, you immediately radio for help or assistance, or backup, or however you word that. Sure. But, I mean, you would think that he would have done that to have another person there previous to, I guess, you know, like you said, we're, we're not looking at the primary report, and that's, you know, that and, and that's why we're talking about it, because, you know, maybe someone out there does have more information than we do, and that would be super-duper to hear. Right. Um, here we are talking about it. And, I mean, um, in, in 1979, police policies and procedures weren't, weren't commonplace. You know, it's not, you know, they didn't have a 500 page policy manual like we have today. You know, I mean, it was, especially in a town like Edgerton, um, where there's, it's a one trick pony, it's a one cop show. Everything you do in Edgerton is going to be by yourself. And there's a lot of agencies that are like that today. Their policies are a, a copy and paste policy from another agency, right? Where their names have been changed to, now that agency right you know so 
back in 1979, policies and procedures, you know, there wasn't really a commonplace for it. It wasn't it wasn't like it is today. So to say that, you know, they had a policy in place, that's got to be inaccurate because I can't believe in 79 that they would they would have, I, I can't believe that in Edgerton they would deal with this enough right? to have to have that sort of... I understand, you know, being out of your element and, and you know, not prepared for right. that kind of thing. But, that, but like I said, that goes back to, that, to the call he received about the discovery of Deb's body... It yeah, goes, when you receive goes, that call, you think you would be on the phone with everyone right, saying, right. Like, like, I agree. everyone and, and, go you know, here. You know, maybe they did lack technology in 1979, but they certainly didn't lack common sense. Or maybe, you know, that, that's that's where we're at, is, you know, we're, we're just talking about somebody who, you know, was like, oh. And, and, you know, again, playing devil's advocate, no matter what era or decade or year we're in, you know, reading this police report, it was still handled poorly Yeah. at the end of the day. Indeed. People are fallible. People make mistakes. I understand that. And, you know, if there was a mistake made in this case, at the very least, the family deserves an apology. Um, I agree 100%. Yeah, I don't know what time that was, but yeah. it does say that the body was finally released to a coroner at 7.30 that night. A coroner from Sioux Falls? Well, the coroner of Pipestone County at the time was uh, Dr. Larry Christensen who just happened to have recently retired uh, from general practice. So, you know, he's he's still around. I've, I've attempted to contact him. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see if we, if we get any information from him in a follow-up. Um, the fact that the body was released um, to the coroner and then in the, in the newspaper article from the Daily Globe, um, it states that she was taken to Sioux Falls, correct? Yeah. I imagine that that's who they're speaking about in this report. Or he all, says, all of, I stayed in the area until the coroner released the body. So he's probably talking about Dr. Beckering. Well, and, and Dr. Beckering was the deputy coroner at the time. So so would the deputy coroner have have the authority to release the body? If, if the coroner gave him permission. So... At some point, he would have had to have contacted, and, he, and, and it, it, it is noted that he that he needed to go back to his office to make phone calls. Um, so you know we can we can go ahead and assume that those phone calls were made, and maybe um, and you know maybe Dr. Christensen. I, I can't imagine that that a coroner from another state would be able to release a body. I mean, yes, it it can happen. The coroner can release the body to. Well, no, can a, can a coroner from a, a, like, let's say, okay, so her autopsy was done in Sioux Falls. Could that coroner have been like, yeah, release her, I'll take it. Like, yes. I mean, is that how that works? Yes. Okay, yep. okay. Yep, it can work that way. Okay. And I know um, back in 1979, it probably was, was not the same. It was probably a little bit lax sure. almost as far as, um, you know, rules like that go. I did um, contact the Minnehaha County coroner. Today, I did speak with him. He's such a nice guy. Thank you, Dr. Snell, for helping me out. And unfortunately, um, he could not help me in obtaining a copy or access to the medical examiner's report because records in Minnehaha County for the medical examiner's office pre-1980 were destroyed. And not one flood, but two. So, I mean... Yeah, go figure. We're not just we're not just gonna make sure you can't uh, find what you're looking for. Not once, but two times. <laughs> so that was um, that was really hard to hear, you know, because 
you know, at, at some point there was a record and, you know, he indicated that, that they do have files or they would have files that would go back that far. Um, a f- very few files survive those floods and eventually the files that did survive, they had to, they had to destroy because the mold wouldn't die. And, right. you know, anyone who's, who's found something that's been in a flood knows, um, all about that and it's unpleasant and, um, I can't, and he said they were illegible. You could not read any of it. He said he does have some, you know, but I imagine that a bulk of them were just destroyed altogether. Um, we know how devastating floods can be. And it, it, it was, it was just, it was just a real tough thing to hear. Um, however, Dr. Snell was really, really helpful and he was very sympathetic and, and he, he wished he could help, and um, honestly, that's that's the best response I've gotten from any official I've contacted regarding this case, and I really appreciate that about him. So he told me not to give up because, you know, sometimes doctors, you know, keep their own files, and, you know, it's a long shot, but, you know, we're still going to try to pursue, you know, any, any avenue we can to, to get any information in relation to an autopsy. Heating up the cold case. Yeah. Here's where we're at, Serena, um, with with this case. Oh, we're not done by any means. Uh, yeah, we're not done at all. We might have a lot of roadblocks here, but it, we're not finished. So what do you think, Serena, so far? I think that there is a lot to unpack here and that something went wrong along the way. Yeah, something went wrong, all right. Something went awry. Uh, Deb was not brought the justice that she so deserves. Yeah, that's just another, There, you know, there's another sad element to this case that I can't help but but bring up. It's the fact that Deb and her family didn't have the community that they should have that, you know, rallied around them and, you know, demanded answers for a, a murder in their own backyard. And um, it's just another layer on top of their grief um that they were experiencing and and i just feel i just feel really really sorry that that not only was deb taken from them but you know they never had a sense of community in in the in the public eye and and with law enforcement um and their lack of due diligence you know so i i guess i guess that's where i stand with that it's um this is a 1,123 people that have just completely swept this under the rug. You can search Deb's name and you're not going to find very much. Yeah, I mean, you will find that that she died, um, that she has a headstone in Edgerton at a cemetery, and then you will find um, an article from the Worthington Daily Globe where they assisted me in searching their archive for the article. That's That's what you'll find though, is a headstone in an article, and this article being 41 years after her death, and it's only written because we're sitting here right now. Yeah, it's, um, it's only here because, um, Leah Ward, the great crime reporter over there at the Worthington Daily Globe, um, reached out to me after I made a Facebook post regarding this podcast, and I made the Facebook post Hoping to, you know, get some public attention on this case, ruffle a few feathers if necessary. And I think, I think I did that. And, um, she took notice and, and really helped me out in searching the archive and locating 
the article that she did and also giving us permission to cite their well their article from 1979 the only goddamn article the only there there is an article there is a paragraph in the edgerton enterprise that she was found dead it's basically an obituary more than well it's basically announcing that there will be a, a funeral and then there is an obituary and that is it and i find it very interesting that in searching their archive i was looking for anything regarding a girl that was murdered or at least the victim of foul play and there was nothing other than a paragraph about her de- her death and then her funeral I feel like foul play or not, in a town of 1,100 people, there would be more than one simple paragraph on Deb's death. Well, you know you know what they did um, write a half a page on uh, are the comings and the goings and the travel plans and um, injuries, uh, hospital stays, care instructions for a wound even um, that I found um, within this ar- archive that I looked into and... I find it amazing that in a town that basically kept track of everyone's bowel movements, they did not even do a proper article on on the possibility of this girl being murdered. <laughs> and I don't know if that sh- if that is telling of something, or and I don't know if if that is um, as everyone says um, that's just the way it was back then. Well, that's not the way it is now, and we're not done. We won't be done. Until we've exhausted every avenue possible. And and we, we continue to get more information, even as we record this right now. So, I mean, I guess stay tuned. And, and we'll be bringing you a part two of this story here in the near future. I don't want to set any dates or anything right now. Um, just because at this point, the information is so fluid. And um, I'd like to have time to, you know, at least sort through it. So we won't make any promises. But in the meantime, we'll be uh, bringing you... Rachel Syriac's story, she she went missing from Woonsocket, South Dakota. I know it sounds familiar. Um, you heard that in the first episode about Eugene Prince. They are unrelated, seven years apart, still very strange. And even just, even just um, uh, this past week, there was a teenage girl that was reported as a runaway from Woonsocket. And I found out today they just finally found her in Wisconsin, and they were on their way to go get her. That's far. And, yeah, I mean, for a teenage girl, and, I mean, I don't know what's going on in one second. I couldn't even figure out how I would get to Wisconsin, and I'm an adult. Yeah, I mean, like, I have a car. Like, how would I get there? Well, I mean, like, like, yeah, I mean, I have my own car, and I got money, and, like, I can't even... I mean, I, I mean, Jeff would have to drive me, and he'd, we'd probably have to rent a car, because, I mean, let's be honest. I don't, <laughs> I don't make, want to put those miles on my car. I don't even make enough money to have a great car, so, you know, <laughs> clearly I don't make any money doing this, but... We're riding hoopties. It's, it's simply just the right thing to do, and if it's got to be us to do it, then so be it. We will be assisting the family and, you know, and navigating this... I guess we are just going to call it an investigation. I, I, you know, I just kept calling it research and a story, but I mean, at this point, uh, it's being investigated. I, yeah, it's being investigated, and it's being investigated by us. So, yeah, we're not the cops, and I'm pretty damn annoying when I don't get what I want. So it's just easier to talk to me initially than to have me like keep bugging you about stuff. And, but I mean, I will because. 
that's, you know, that's what I do. So maybe we'll be talking to you. <laughs> okay. And at the funeral home, we never got the, the findings of the autopsy, but it would okay. have been sent back, I'm sure, to Dr. Christensen. Okay. And Dr. And Christensen I... signed the death certificate. But what is so odd on this death certificate is that she died in August, and it was not officially filed at the county until January of the following year. 